Hello, I'm Rabia Chaudhary. I invite you to join me every Tuesday for new episodes of Nighty Night, Bedtime Stories to Keep You Awake, now on Podcast One. This new incarnation of Nighty Night is an anthology of stories that bring to life classic horror stories, some you're definitely familiar with, and others you'll be hearing for the first time. Join me as I tuck you into bed with stories that will leave you sleepless all night long. Get new episodes of Nighty Night every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the Prosecutors. Today on the Prosecutors, we return to Mark Twitchell, but this time we have an expert. and welcome to this episode of The Prosecutors. I'm Brett, and I'm joined, as always, by my consulting co-host, Alice. Hi, Brett. I wish that was about me, but in fact, we have the ultimate consult here, Julia Callie, former FBI agent, behavior analysis profiler. I, I completely butchered that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> And I just, I don't want to say anything more because as all our past episodes with the amazing Julia, you guys just want to hear what she has to say, especially about today's case. And we have her here because of an exciting development in her own podcast. Hi, Julia. Welcome. Hi, thank you for having me back. Great to be here. So as Alice referenced, by the time people hear this episode, I guess the consult is returning has returned a lot of you guys out there know that julia has her own podcast that she hosts with several other retired behavioral analysts <laughs> and what an what an awesome opportunity for all of us who love true crime to have not just julia but a bunch of experts sitting around talking about this case we know how much you guys love behavior we hear it from you all the time so julia before we get into all the Mark Twitchell stuff, tell us about the show. Okay. Well, our show's called The Consult. And that name, it was one of my former colleagues who was not a profiler, but I, I would tell him stories about behavioral analysis unit. He loved it. But every time we would get together with detectives on a case, we'd we call it a consult. Hey, can you come to my consult? Can you come? So my colleague said, oh, you need to do a podcast. And he was an avid fan of Jerry Williams' podcast. She's a retired FBI agent who interviews other FBI agents about cases that they worked on. And he said, oh, you, you should do a podcast too and tell us all your stories. And so I grabbed a few of my other colleagues who had also retired from the behavioral analysis unit, two of them being my mentors in the unit and another one being one of my classmates as we went through our training at BAU. And we all have kind of different perspectives, different backgrounds. 
So we, we basically just look at cases, both solved, unsolved, and talk about behavior. I call it the podcast for the nerdiest of true crime fans. Which are the people <laughs> who listen to us. So <laughs> I was going to say, we might yeah. buy you for that. So you're yeah. in good company here. Yeah, and, exactly. and we're coming back with actually the help of you guys and a support from some other podcasters out there. But I, we couldn't come back without you. As, as you know, it's just a ton of work. And we did a few episodes and just took a hiatus. And I thought someday we'll get back to it if we get like the right opportunity and you know things have come together so that we're able to relaunch and start up again. So we're very excited and, and we have kind of a better foundation to continue with shows and not be so sporadic as we were before. Well, so. the, the first time Julia came on the show, after it was over, I called her and I said, you need to start a podcast. You're awesome. And she said, I have a podcast. <laughs> and so at that point, we were like, well, you need to start it again <laughs> because because you're awesome. And I think everybody, who we've gotten so much great feedback from that show and from every time you've been on the show. I know people are going to love it. So it's called The Consult. Yep. Do you know what what day is it going to be coming out for people so they can start looking for it if they are? November already? 1st. That's November what? 1st. That's the big relaunch date. It's, it's it's kind of out of my hands at this point. We have shows ready to go, but we got to make sure. But I, that's our, our goal is November 1st. And what's your production schedule? What day of the week can people be anticipating your episodes to drop? Well, if it comes out on November 1st, which I believe is a Wednesday, then it'll be every two weeks on a Wednesday. Every so, other Wednesday. Okay. Every other Wednesday. Good right. to know. Good to know. Every other Wednesday, it's about to become my favorite yeah. day of the week. I know that. <laughs> and what we didn't know... While we were getting our October episodes ready and covering Mark Twitchell and stumbling upon the fact that Julia had been on national television talking about the case, we did not know, number one, that she was so involved in the case, and number two, that the first episode of her relaunch is about Mark Twitchell. But when we found that out, <laughs> we thought, we have to have Julia on the show. You guys... I know y'all really loved that episode. We got a lot of feedback about it and a lot of questions. People had tons of questions about him, about the crimes he committed. And so who better than Julia to have on in case you missed it? Because maybe you're one of those people who doesn't listen to Halloween episodes for reasons that are unclear. Mark Twitchell is a man from Canada, from Edmonton, who after we released the episode, I was informed by people across Canada that Edmonton, in fact, is not Canada's greatest city. So if you're from Edmonton, you have to go and take out those Calgary people because they're very anti-Edmonton. I guess there's like a rivalry or something. But in any event, he was an aspiring filmmaker, I guess is one way to describe him. A Dexter-obsessed person who was eventually convicted of murder in this complicated catfishing scheme where he would go onto dating sites and lure men to a garage where he would attack them. There were two instances, one where he was successful and a man was killed and another instance where the person actually got away. And when he went to trial, he didn't argue insanity. He didn't argue he didn't do it. He argued self-defense, which I thought was really interesting. So that's sort of a general overview of the case. If you want all the details, check out our episode or check out Julia's episode or, or watch, I believe it was 48 hours that you were on, Julia, talking about it. Correct. But today we really wanted to let Julia do her thing and talk about this case. So I guess my first question for you, Julia, would just be, how did you get involved with Twitchell's case? Obviously, it's a Canadian case. How did you as an FBI profiler become involved in that? 
Well, I never worked on it when it first happened. And by the time I got involved in it, 48 Hours had already filmed a show, I think back in 2012, and they were updating it because Mark Twitchell had been corresponding with the journalist, Steve Lillibune, who wrote The Devil Cinema, which I think you mentioned in your first episode. And they had had correspondence and Steve's book was coming out. And so 48 Hours had reached out to me and asked if I could take a look at some of the writings and see what I thought about them. And of course, I said, well, I don't want to do it unless I can actually talk with detectives and get a really good understanding of the crime itself and as it relates to these writings. So that's how I got involved in it, just through the TV show and, and the updated version that included the book and the letters that he had written with the journalist, exchanged with the journalist. And for those who may not be completely up to speed, there were a lot of writings attributed to Mark Twitchell. So can you talk a little bit about what these writings were, what he claimed to be, and what you were doing when you took a look at them? What were you looking for within his writings? I didn't really know what I was looking for. They just asked me to analyze them. And so I, I really concentrated on a couple of the writing. One was the SK Confessions, which you talked about in your show as well, which we do believe means serial killer confessions. I, I mean, I, I don't think that's a big jump or leap because it's all about his progression into becoming a serial killer and his attempt on the first victim's life and then the murder of Johnny Altinger. And so I, I really looked at that one and I thought that was a, a good one to look at because, and interestingly, it was admitted into court and used as a confession of sorts, as evidence against Mark Twitchell. I also looked at some other writings about his realization that he was a psychopath and all the reasons why he thought he was a psychopath. And I also read some letters that he had exchanged with the journalist who wrote the book about him. So there's so much to dig into there. <laughs> but before we actually dig into the to the substance of what he wrote, you know, his claim at trial was, this is all fiction. This is, I'm a filmmaker. This is a script. And, you know, as somebody who's written fiction before and written things in fiction that I would never do in real life, how did that affect your analysis of the written word? Obviously, if you had his diaries and you knew this is what he was writing, that would be one thing. Did you have to look at it through a certain lens knowing his claim that it was fictional, were you able to, I guess, to your own satisfaction, prove that it wasn't fictional? Well, the way I looked at it and, and approached it was that, you know, I, I had to, you know, I didn't take everything he said as gospel. What I did do is when I talked with one of the lead detectives, Detective Bill Clark, and he had told me that during their investigation, they had gone like line by line through SK confessions to see what was true and what was not true. And, and they had a lot of evidence to base that on. Not, not only did they have the victim who escaped, they had that whole story. And that story that Mark Twitchell writes about in SK Confessions is exactly as the witness described. And, you know, the other evidence that developed during the investigation aligned very well. And I think he told me that it was what they could verify of the letter was 86% accurate. <laughs> 
So, you know, in, in terms of, so I, and I kind of knew which portions were probably accurate, you know, the way he set up the room, the way it attempts to hide the body and get rid of the body, all, all that, they obtained evidence to show that those things really did happen in the way that he said that they happened in the letter. I love the precision of 86%. <laughs> but now like the really interesting part where your expertise comes in, why? Why did he write this, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be, have been a hard sell for anyone to have described these crimes to a T, the setup of his kill room to a T, and be able to pass it off as fiction. That's going to be really difficult. So why? What possessed him to write this down? And what does that tell you about Mark Twitchell? I think just generally, he's an avid writer. He, he loves writing. You know, he's a, as you say, a wannabe filmmaker and, and writing scripts. And so he, he likes to do that. That's how he expresses himself creatively. So I think, and this was his way too, this to kind of live out or relive his fantasies. And, you know, he would, he wasn't working. He would, he was lying to his wife saying that he was going to work during the day and he wasn't working for like a year and he's telling her he was going to therapy and things like that. And he'd, he'd just go sit somewhere and go to a cafe and get on the computer, probably writing things out, you know, shopping for his items that he would need to commit these crimes. So I think that that was one of the reasons but I, I think this was all very much fantasy based and he liked putting this down on paper. I don't think even though he says, well, this is fiction and I was making it for a movie. I don't think he really ever intended for these particular rights, especially SK confessions to be found. I think this was extremely personal to him. And he did describe in this, like his deep, dark, personal secret. And I think that was important important to him to, to keep this part of it a secret. But yeah, I, I think it was just mostly just fantasy and reliving the fantasy. And, and that's why he documented everything so thoroughly. And I think he was excited to do it. You read this right. And he probably just couldn't wait to go detail everything that he had done, you know, and, and you know, his creative mind is like, oh, I've done all this. And now I have all this imagery that I can put to paper and relive it. And Really, I guess he thinks he's very smart. He thinks he's smarter than everybody. And, you know, this is kind of a classic case of that duper's delight. He even, he even writes about it and like, what if I'm just, you know, next to somebody in a car and they don't even know they're next to a serial killer? And I'm not sure if that's exactly what he says, but he has this kind of this mentality of really enjoying duping people and you know, making puns like, oh, my job was murder today, hon. You know, he says something like that. Like, <sighs> it'll be funny if my wife asked me how my day was and I can, you know, make these little jokes and it's like his own little secret. And I think he really delighted in that. Do you think that affected him choosing his, his method? You know, all, all killers sort of have a different way of getting victims. And his was this catfishing thing, which is, you know, can be kind of time consuming and you've got to wait. You got to wait till somebody takes the bait, as it were, and you can reel them in. Right. <laughs> and so, but he was willing, he was patient enough to do that. He didn't just drive up down the street looking for somebody. Do you think that was part of this, the duping part of his personality. He liked the fact that that was the way he was getting his victims. Definitely. I, I think that was a big part of it, pretending to be somebody else, 
pretending to form a relationship, uh, you know, in pretending, oh, I'm a woman and, and, you know, come, come meet me, but absolutely duping them. I mean, he didn't even, you know, he didn't limit his duping just to these crimes. I mean, he was stealing money from people. He was telling people, conning them, telling them, oh, I have a big movie deal coming, which none of it was true. Even in his letters after you know, he's imprisoned, he's writing to people, I had a $350,000 movie deal. That that wasn't true at all, according to Detective Clark. So he was always conning people. Everything he did, from what I learned about him, he's just constantly lying. And he would tell lies when he didn't have to tell lies. He would tell lies, I think, just because he, he enjoyed knowing that he was getting one over on somebody. So being the smartest person in the room, being kind of a con man, doesn't necessarily lead to serial killer. So having read a lot of what he's written, what do you think for him led him to killing? Or was it something that was always there and the first step was conning? According to some of his writings, I think he'd been fantasizing about murder for a very long time. I'm not sure when that first developed, but probably at a pretty young age, he starts thinking about these things and coming up with plans. And and clearly he he thinks a lot. He, he plans. He kind of overplans. And that was somewhat of his downfall. <laughs> he got caught trying to pretend that that Johnny had gone off with a woman and and I think some of that led to his downfall like this, these you know this over planning this you know, telling so many lies and I'm not sure how long he had planned to become a killer but yeah it's it probably was something because you're right there are con men out there that you know have the similar types of qualities that he has you're not caring about anybody else only caring about their own needs and things like that but they don't end up becoming killers you know, they they maybe they just steal money from people or or they just go around lying all the time, but they don't become killers, not like him. So yeah, I, I don't know exactly when his fantasies of violence started coming into play, but I, I believe probably for a pretty long time he had these fantasies. And there's probably other things out there that he's written that they have been destroyed and we'll just never have access to them. So you mentioned earlier SK Confessions is kind of a way for him to relive his crimes. And, and I know that's fairly common for serial killers or just killers of this nature to want to be able to relive their crimes. And you see it, you know, some people take pictures, some people record things, audio recordings, video recordings, whatever. Have you ever seen someone who does it like this that writes a fictional account the real thing that they did? I mean, that, that I've never heard anything like that, but I don't know if you've ran into that in your career. I, I haven't. I haven't seen anything quite like this before. And it's kind of like the fictional, but it's not fictional. I just changed a couple names and most of it is is true. But I've, I've never really seen a, a case quite like this. I've seen killers writings before, but not not quite like this. And in and, and some killers, you know, sometimes the memory is enough. They, they don't need anything physical, like they don't need to take a trophy or pictures or they don't have to write it down. That's just sometimes their memory. But in serial sexual killers, I mean, that, you know, fantasy is a, a huge part of why they do what they do. So let's talk about the Dexter angle. We know that he was obsessed with the show Dexter and he watched it. I think all the time and he writes about it and he wants to emulate Dexter. Have you seen that kind of obsession with a fictional character in other people that you've analyzed? And if not, why Dexter? Well, I know why Dexter, but, but you know, if it weren't Dexter, would it just be another obsession of his that kind of fueled his fantasies? I have not worked on a case where the offender was 
obsessed with a, a particular character. Now, I, I'm sure that there are some out there, but I haven't worked on anything quite like this before. And, you know, I, I think that he was just drawn to Dexter because he had these fantasies and, and, you know, a lot of people liked the show Dexter and they probably like it you know, because, well, I, you know, maybe I liked it because I'm interested in, in serial killers and catching serial killers. So I watched the show or, or, you know, just like somebody who's religious, maybe drawn to a religious show, religious music, you kind of, you're drawn to what you're interested in, what you like. And I think it, it's as simple as that. And then he sees this and he, he just really, somehow relates thinks you know i'm kind of like him i'm really smart i'm very methodical i don't have any feelings and that's it this show is giving me some good ideas that i want to sort of be like him and i think he was drawn to it too just because he's very theatrical and he you know, obviously is in, in the film industry sort of i mean he, he did make some films and you know i think just He's probably very influenced by media like that, TV, movies, movie characters. And so I, I think that's probably another aspect to him. And it's probably pretty significant that, you know, that this was his career choice. The Prosecutor's Podcast is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Most of you listening right now are probably multitasking. Yep, while you're listening to us talk, you're probably also driving, cleaning, exercising, or maybe even grocery shopping. But if you're not in some kind of moving vehicle, there's something else you can be doing right now. Getting an auto quote from Progressive Insurance. It's easy and you could save money by doing it right from your phone. Drivers who save by switching to Progressive save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Discounts for having multiple vehicles on your policy, being a homeowner, and more. So just like your favorite podcast, Progressive will be with you 24-7, 365 days a year. So you're protected no matter what. Multitask right now. Quote your car insurance at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Guys, you know that feeling you get when you finally find the thing you've been searching for on the internet? After spending hours researching and reading thousands of reviews, you find it. This thing, whatever it is for you. Could be sparkly disco pants, designer dog hoodies, anything that makes you happy. And it checks literally all your boxes. And it has five stars. Oh, and it arrives in just 48 hours. So why is it that you can get the most random, wonderfully reviewed thing from around the world in just two days? But if you want to see a good doctor, it can take forever to get an appointment. Not to mention, how do you know if they're even good? Thankfully, there is a way. It's called ZocDoc, a place to find and book great doctors who actually have amazing reviews, many with appointments available within 24 hours. I'm not getting any younger. I was looking for a doctor. I got on ZocDoc, and I was amazed at how easy it was to find the doctors in my area who take my insurance and who have appointments available, and you're going to be amazed by it 
too. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. We're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top-rated patient-reviewed doctors and specialists. You can filter specifically for ones who take your insurance, are located near you, and treat almost any condition you're searching for. These docs all have verified reviews from actual, real patients, not bots. The average wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 to 48 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately with just a few taps on the app. No more waiting awkwardly on hold with a receptionist. Go to ZocDoc.com prosecutors and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C.com prosecutors. ZocDoc.com slash prosecutors. Guys, we are so excited to welcome back one of our favorite sponsors, HelloFresh. You all know how busy life gets. Today, I was running from one court hearing to recording with Brett, and I didn't know when I would be able to fit in going to the grocery store, looking up a new recipe, cooking it for my family in time to feed them because they are always hungry. Enter HelloFresh. With HelloFresh, you get farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to your doorstep. Skip trips to the grocery store and count on HelloFresh to make home cooking easy, fun, and affordable. And that's why it's America's number one meal kit. This is the most wonderful time of the year, and it is also the most delicious. You can enjoy every bite of the holiday season with HelloFresh. Choose from over 45 weekly recipes and over 100 curated picks from HelloFresh market. Just like always, HelloFresh's ingredients travel from the farm to your door so you know they're fresh and they have something for everybody. Whatever it is you're looking for, HelloFresh will have it. And if you get a chance to try the firecracker meatballs, check them out. They are amazing. Go to HelloFresh.com slash TPFree and use code TPFree for free breakfast for life. One breakfast item per box while subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com slash TPFree with code TPFree. And find out for yourself why HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. I want to ask you sort of a random question. It's not random, but I don't know that it's answerable. <laughs> so when Twitchell sort of starts down this path of being a serial killer, he's about 29 years old. And I'm just curious, is there any data or studies about when people who are who are going to do something like this who are having these fantasies is there an age where they kind of start is there does that make any sense do, yes. do these things normally have a trigger that takes him from Sometimes. just fantasizing about it to actually acting out yeah and and i don't know that there's a particular age i i would say this is probably about the average age that a serial killer starts it seems kind of but what what we would have expected is to see, and, and I'm not sure about this, but maybe see other things in his history that would be leading up to this. But I don't think that there's a lot there in terms of, you know, did he wet his bed or start fires or hurt animals? I mean, he claims he didn't. Like he say, I think he says in one of his writings, he never hurt animals or anything like that, but he always knew he was different. But it, it doesn't appear that he had a real significant criminal history other, you know, and, and when I say criminal history, anything that he'd been arrested for, 
But what he does have is a significant history of lying and manipulating people, particularly like stealing money from people. So, so you do have this history of betrayal and conning people and manipulating people, but you don't have the violent criminal history that you would expect to see you know, with someone who commits these violent crimes that he committed. Kind of along that age question, I find this so fascinating that you have statistics on kind of the age of serial killers. So if 29-ish, around 30, is the average age of when they start, if Twitchell had never been caught, would he ever taper off? You know, we see criminals' recidivism kind of drop as they get older. They kind of chill out is, is what we say. Would that ever happen or would he just get emboldened and fed with you know, each successful kill. I do think there's an aging out process. It doesn't necessarily mean their fantasies go away, but yeah, just like anything you get, you know, older, it gets harder, you get tired, you don't have the same energy or, or motivating factors in your life. So yeah, the criminals age out, it's not just in, in serial murder, it's in any kind of criminality. They just kind of this aging out process that I, I think happens. What is that age? I'm curious. Oh, I don't know. I, I just I need to know who who is aging out of serial killers around around the people I interact with. I'm too old to murder people right now. My back hurts. Like I'm tired all the time. I mean, it, it would be it would be rough. I mean, you know, we we have seen you know certain you know serial killers who really do get busy with life. They they are raising children. They you know they maybe stop for a while, maybe start back up again. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we know now about them that we we didn't know back then. And yeah, they can stop. They can stop for a period of time. They can never start again. Like we still, we still don't know why certain killers did stop. Even, you know, it's not that they were dead or they were in prison. They just had to stop because maybe they, it could be a number of things. They were getting too old. They had a close call. They didn't want to get caught. I mean, it's kind of a myth that they want to get caught because they, they really don't. But with Twitchell, I mean, he, he was young. He was pretty fit. If he hadn't have been caught, and he was, he, I, I think he was caught fairly quickly in terms, it wasn't like this long-term investigation. They were on to him. Once his friends said, there's something wrong here, and they started kind of like looking around. And, and it was in a matter of a few days that the police are sort of like, what's going on here? And they, they're on to Twitchell, and, and he's arrested, I think, within two weeks of murdering Johnny. But I, I mean, I, I think he would have tried again and again and at some maybe at some point as you know he had a he had a daughter and maybe if, if he had any more children and life got busier then perhaps he would have slowed down and or he you know he might have had too many close calls at some point and decided you know self-preservation I'm gonna stop now you know there's just all sorts of reasons but I do think like probably when you start getting into your 40s and 50s it's just you know it just becomes harder like everything else does. You know, one thing that I thought was interesting, you just mentioned they don't really want to get caught. You know, they say that all the time, but I guess that's more of a myth. But it does seem like he's very impressed with himself, right? I think we can see that from his writing. In the whole Dexter thing, it seemed like in many ways he wanted credit for how for impressive he was and how elaborate the scheme was, and yet he denied it at trial and denies it, I guess, still to this day. Does it surprise you that he doesn't want to make take more credit for it? Or is that something that you see a lot of? It does kind of surprise me that, well, I don't want to say it surprised me. He, you know, he does, he does like attention. But this, I think, was deeply personal. And he did not want this part of his life known. That's what I believe. 
And he, he, I mean, he, he might want to tell this story through a movie, through fiction. And so in a way, like duping an audience <laughs> that this is really my story and they have no idea that I really did these things. But I, I do think that was probably what his ultimate fantasy was, was to somehow <laughs> create some sort of movie or, you know, fictionalized version of this, but with all the same details, just changing a few things, just sort of like you see in SK Confessions, and then he dupes a whole audience. So, but th my belief is he didn't really want to share these personal details. And I have seen killers who do want to share, but they're, they, but they always hold something back. They've got to hold something back. I don't think we get, ever get the full story, but they do want to talk and they do want to tell people what they did and take credit for what they did. And then you have other killers that do not. They don't want to take credit. They don't communicate with police. They just keep it all to themselves. And then when they're you know arrested and interviewed, they, they never give a statement. Something you said earlier, you, you mentioned this as a sexually motivated killing. I don't know if you yes. use that term, but something like that. And just looking at it as a layperson, I guess other than the fact you used a dating site, it doesn't feel maybe as sexual as, as some of the your sort of standard serial killers. What about this makes you tie it into sort of a sexual motivation? So when I first read SK Confessions, I mean, this is this is totally sexually motivated. And, and I don't think any, and that was not the motive that was presented at trial. Um, I don't think anyone, anyone really thought about it that way. But the, the way I read it, there's kind of a number of things that jumped out to me. The way he describes getting ready for this, like setting up his room, buying the supplies, setting up the room, what he's going to wear. It's like he was preparing for a date. And and then the, the you know, the, the way he chose him, you know, he's, he's choosing men from a dating app and, and these men are, and he knows it too, because he even references that they're going to be kind of sh showing up ready to, you know, be in a romantic relationship. I, I think it's interesting that, you know, he chooses men, you know, that, you know, fit a, a certain criteria, how tall they're going to be. Like, why does that matter at all? Why should how they look matter to you? And so, so I just thought, I think he feels like he's kind of preparing for this date. And then, you know, then we have to kind of just go back and look at ex exactly what did he do? Like, what, what is he doing with these victims? And he's luring them there. He's killing them, or, you know, I should say one victim, but, you know, I, I'm going to include the one that got away, even though he wasn't murdered, but this was going to be ultimately what likely happened to him as well, lures them there. And he talks about wanting to get the killing over with as quickly as possible. And that, that is unusual. Usually the, the serial killers, you know, enjoy the, the killing part and the taking of the life. And then once it's done, you know, they just dump, dump the body. They, they don't care anymore, but, but not Twitchell. He wants to kill the victim as quickly as possible. And then he even talks about, then the fun starts. And so he goes into great detail about you know, taking off the victim's clothes and dismembering the body. And he, he also kind of makes a point of saying, well, I'm not going to look at his genitalia. And it's, it just seemed like, why is he throwing that in there? <laughs> what? Why would you even think that, 
you know, it's just like this unexpected. And, and whenever you're kind of looking at statements, you're sort of looking like what's what's unnecessary. So it's almost like, you know, I'm not looking at that. But what I really saw is that what, he, what does he want to do? He wants to spend time with, you know, a dead man's body, a naked body. And so while he doesn't describe or do anything sexual to him, that's, that's sort of, it's necrophilic behavior. It's necrophilic in nature. You're wanting to, you know, mutilate a body like that. And I thought that that all seemed very somewhat sexually motivated. And I think that's why this was such a big secret to him. And I, and I don't think people thought of it that way because, you know, he, he lived his life, you know, his, his normal everyday life. And he was probably, he could have been perfectly happy. He's, you know, in a relationship, we were married to a woman. He'd been married prior to a woman. He's had been married and divorced. He was, had an affair. I think he had multiple affairs with women. So there's no indication in his regular life that, you know, he was gay. And I don't think he was gay. We do talk about this on our show, the, the complexity of sexuality and fantasy. And but but in his fantasy life, this is what he wanted to do and, and not necessarily be in a relationship. So so that's kind of what I what I came up with. And the producer, when I was talking with Troy Roberts, and I said that one of the producers, she shout out, you can't say that. <laughs> and, and Troy goes, well, this is 48 hours. <laughs> you can say that. <laughs> and, you know, but it, it's, I mean, I can understand it's extremely graphic to think about, but, you know, sometimes it's just going back and looking at what are the bottom line? What did he want to do? What did he want to do? He wanted to spend a lot of time with a naked, you know, a dead man's naked body. And as graphic as that is, that's, you know, that's what we have to consider. Wow. I've thought a lot about this case. I've never thought about that aspect, especially when you started explaining why you came to the conclusion that this was sexual in nature. It made complete sense because, as you said, this wasn't the the typical sexual motivated crime. Uh, who knows who he was sexually attracted to? It's not that point of it. It's how complex sexuality is and kind of the rise, the animalistic rise that it gives in a person may not always be just a physical thing. In this case, I, I hadn't thought about what you just said. I, I don't necessarily think, who cares about his own sexuality and his day-to-day -day life, but I think it is important to note that he pretended to be a woman to attract at least a man who was interested in meeting another woman. And he wasn't just on these catfishing websites, or I'm sorry, on these dating websites to catfish, say, a man who was attracted to a man. And so that's that's very interesting. And I wonder if it had something to do with looking for someone who he wanted to be, right? Like in his life, he is a, a straight man who probably thought very highly of himself. I don't know how he thought about himself physically, but he, he clearly had an image of himself and prized beauty, which is part of his, you know, movie making behavior. So I'm just thinking about this as you're kind of giving me it has, does it have anything to do with maybe like how he's viewing himself and who he sees himself as in these victims of his? It could be. And I, I think that's, you bring up a really good point, Alice, because, you know, he's, he's not wanting a gay man to come. He's, he wants a heterosexual man who's attracted to these, you know, beautiful women who he's 
put on these websites, you know, Sheena and Jen, you know, the sexy women. And, and so, yeah, he's, he's attracting heterosexual men, not gay men. So I, I think that's an interesting choice, perhaps. Yeah. Maybe that's like, you know, kind of looking for somebody kind of like myself. And one other thing to note is like, as a woman, I'm always on the lookout for potential people to kill me is like a woman is a lot easier to kill when you're a man, right? These men were, I mean, clearly they fought for their lives. One of them was successful in fighting him off and being able to outrun him. It would be a lot harder to overcome a man if you pick a smaller, you know, petite woman. And he didn't go for kind of the stereotypical catfishing of a woman who is going to be smaller in size to him, likely unable to overpower him physically. That kind of fits into your theory of the motivating feature of it. But was that surprising at all that he, you know, didn't seem to attack women? Well, it wasn't when I realized or when I felt that this was sexually motivated. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, you know, in in a way, yeah, again, another really good point. You know, it's much higher risk that, you know, he doesn't really know how strong these men might be, how what kind of training they might have had. you know, if they're athletic or not. I mean, there's just not, you know, he's kind of just getting a general physical appearance, probably sees their picture, but doesn't really know a ton about them. So it's, it is extremely high risk and it'd be much lower risk if he were looking for, you know, a very small petite woman who might even be able to choose through what, what her activities are. Okay. She's not really athletic. She's not going to really be able to fight back. So yeah, he's, he's picking extremely, he's putting himself in a very high risk situation to, to get this ideal victim. Yeah. And, and he knows that because it might've been a mystery the first time he did it, but he did it, got beaten up. The guy escaped so you feel like it almost had to be important. It had to be a critical part of the crime that it be a man or else I would think you would say, well, no more men. <laughs> if I'm going to murder right. somebody, I'm going to get a woman, somebody who can't fight back as easy. All the things Alice said. So the fact that he had that sort of colossal failure, there's a couple of interesting things to me. Number one, he had the colossal failure and he didn't just stop, which tells me this really was a drive for him. Because if I went through that, I would, number one, be terrified the police can show up at my door anytime. And maybe I would think, no more. I gave it a shot. Didn't work yeah, out. Like, Whew. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Close call. Or I would try for someone easier to kill. But he didn't do that. He basically does the exact same thing he did before. So I think, I think you're right. I mean, I think it has to be significant that he wanted it to be a man. It is interesting that he wanted it to be a straight man. Because it would have been easier for him to do something on a, on a gay site. Cause he is a man, right? He doesn't, it's not as hard to create. Like if you asked me today to create like a female Brett profile, it would be harder. Cause I don't know anything about being a woman. Right. <laughs> but it's interesting that he, he did that. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know how much you could explain it except the way you explain it. And I think it's part of his drive to dupe. I mean, he's being somebody completely different than what he is. And he's really, it's like the ultimate dupe. He's not being himself. He's being somebody else pretending to be a woman. If I can dupe them into this, I mean, how stupid are they? And look how smart I am. And, but yeah, I, I think it's significant in the language he uses. I mean, he describes, I have, I, the weapon, you know, simple, elegant, beautiful, you know, it's very seductive language. (laughs) There's a lot of seductive language in this. And I just see it just like this, just very, very, very private, deep, dark, sexual secret. And even though 
There's no overt sexual act. There's no indication that he's gay. You know, we were kind of trying to describe this like it doesn't mean he's gay. I mean, people can have fantasies and never live them out. You know, that's just that's just a fantasy. And I, I would never do that in real life. But, you know, and, and he may never do this outwardly in real life. But in his fantasy life, this is what he fantasized about. And he crossed that line. It was like it said a drive, a compulsion of some sort. Like, I just have to do this and experience this. And so you said, what is the bottom line? What does he want to do? But he doesn't just stop with the dismembering and the disposing of the body. When he finally kills and Johnny's friends and the police start sniffing around. I mean, Mark Twitchell is able to flippantly come up with these stories and it extends, right? And it didn't even seem like he was trying to say alibis or to mislead the police. It was almost like baiting them or continuing to tell a story. It didn't strike me as when someone is caught red-handed and they're trying to tell stories to get out of it. He seemed to delight in these lies after the fact. Can you talk about that? And what, is, what does that mean? What what was he doing? Because he was going to be caught. I mean, he, it was his garage that he rented and his DNA was all over it. And he was letting them come in. So it was, it didn't seem like he was telling these stories to buy himself more time to then run away. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on why he did that. Well, first of all, the way he kind of told his lies, they just, you could see how easily he tells lies even lies that are completely implausible. I mean, the the lies that he told the police, they knew he was lying and he didn't care. He did not care about being caught in these lies. And I think that that's just part of his personality. It doesn't bother him to get caught in a lie. Like, you know, for us, for us normal people, you get caught in a lie. It's horrifying. It's embarrassing. You're ashamed. You're, you're face turns red and, you know, but, but for somebody like him, he, he doesn't really care. And so these lies, they're just very natural to him. He's been telling lies his entire life and he, he can't, he can't tell the truth. Even if, even if it's just better to tell the truth, he, he just likes to lie to people. And I think this is part of it, this continuing, you know, progression of just, I'm going to continue to dupe. And I think he, he just sort of thought I can continue to get away with it. And then, you know, when Detective Clark interviews him, you know, Detective Clark was not being nice to him. I mean, he wasn't like hurting him or <laughs> like hitting him or anything like that, but he was just very stern with him. And, you know, Twitchell did not like him at all. He became very pouty and, and sullen and just, you know, and even when he offered, you know, you know, several months later to, to, you know, say where the body where he had dumped Johnny's body, he said, you know, he had some conditions and, and one of them was no Detective Clark. He did not like him. And that was because Detective Clark didn't put up with his nonsense. He, he caught him on everything. And he pretty much told him, this is really just, you're just really stupid. And, 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 you know, and he's not stupid. <laughs> and I think I've called him dumb too, but he's not, he's, he's smart. And, but he is, as Detective Clark described to me, extremely naive when it comes to police procedures and had no idea, like all the stuff that they could do to track him. But again, when, when he's telling all these lies, it doesn't bother him. He, he doesn't really care if he's caught. It, he's not ashamed. He doesn't really feel the same things that we do. That, that's my impression of him. So it sounds like you're describing what someone might call a psychopath. 
And we didn't really talk about that much, but he also wrote something called Profile of a Psychopath. So what are your thoughts on, I I haven't seen that document because it wasn't in the court case and we were kind of focused on the court case, just don't really know a lot about it. What do you think about that document and what do you think it says about him and sort of his psychology? Well, he's definitely interested in his own psychology and, you know, he, he does talk about like his lack of empathy and how, and all these different things he had done to kind of dupe people and, oh, I lied about this. I lied to get this mortgage. And, and because it wasn't like he said, part of the court case, the way SK Confessions was, it wasn't gone over line by line the same way. But I, I have a feeling most of it is, is true. He probably did do that. So I would say if, if an expert, you know, I, I'm not, I don't have the ability, I don't have ability to diagnose somebody, but certainly I would say some of the characteristics that we see in Mark Twitchell would align very well with, you know, a narcissist or a psychopath. And I would assume if he's been analyzed by somebody, he would score pretty high on the psychopathy checklist. Let me ask you this. One thing we talked about you know, he may never get out of prison, but he, he is eligible for parole, so he could. And he could get out at a relatively young age. Is this the kind of person who could ever be released into society and you feel safe? Or do you think there's something kind of fundamentally broken about him that's going to always lead to violence of some sort? I don't know. I don't know if we can predict that he'll offend again, but I sh- certain, certainly would not be comfortable with him like living near me. I don't want him to be my neighbor. <laughs> but I mean, you know, I, I mean, the, the question had come up on the show, you know, can he be re- rehabilitated because of this issue of parole? And, and, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, is it, is it possible he might not reoffend if he gets out? It, it's possible. It, will he be fixed and rehabilitated? I doubt it. I think he's still going to have these fantasies. I think they're going to still exist. I think if he had an opportunity to act on that, you know, on those fantasies, I he, he could if he had the, the ability and the physical ability and he thought he could get away with it. And the problem problem is, is he might think he can get away with it because he still thinks he's just smart and smarter than everybody else. So so he may try again. You know, un- unfortunately, we can't punish people for things that they haven't done. However, we can punish them for what they have done. And I just don't think somebody like Mark Twitchell should be allowed to get out just for what he's already done. I mean, he's not going to get better. You know, what he did is was pre-planned and purposeful and and extremely brutal and violent and he's had shown no accountability whatsoever for it. So I don't think he should get out ever just because <laughs> Guys, we are so excited to welcome Noom to the prosecutor's family. You know the problem with fads. They come and go. So when it comes to weight management plans, you need a long-term solution. And that's Noom. Noom uses science and personalization so you can manage your weight for the long term. Noom's psychology-based approach helps you build better habits and behaviors that are easier to maintain. The best part, you decide how Noom fits into your life, not the other way around. Based on a sample of 4,272 Noomers, 98% say Noom helps change their habits and behaviors for good. 
Brett, you know, these diets, fads just don't work for me, which is why I'm so glad that Noom helps you understand the science behind your eating choices and why you have those cravings. Noom's personalized courses are easy to follow and will help grow your confidence with tools you can put into practice on the very first day. And they'll give you the knowledge and wisdom you need to make informed choices about what you eat. Noom's really changing how the world thinks about weight loss. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com to sign up for your trial today. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. And Alice, you can turn to Angie with confidence no matter what the size of your home or the size of your project. Whether you've got a 100-year-old house like I do where it seems like things are always breaking or if you're renting and you're needing someone to help you with moving, installations, or cleaning, Angie is there for you and they're there for you with confidence. So, Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with Angie's app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or they can help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Check them out today. Angie.com. A-N-G-I.com. So one thing we talked about on the show that hasn't really come up yet, we've talked about him as a dupe, but he's also a copycat. So his films are derivative. His murders are derivative. He sees himself as this Dexter-like person. Does that factor into sort of your behavioral analysis when you look at him, the fact that he's, he isn't, he's not doing anything original. It's all sort of imitating what others have done. Well, I thought... The, I, and I haven't read the book. You had mentioned another book that had been written on the case, and the author referred to him as a hollow man. I right. thought that, that was, that's actually it's actually a podcast from podcast. Canada called him a hollow man. I, I should listen to that because I thought that was a really good description. You know, what I think is he's, you know, he's lacking this ability to connect and to have emotion and to feel and, and know how to act. Like, how do I do this? So he, he kind of mimics. And so I think copycat is very interesting. And, and when you don't have the same emotions that other people have, you do tend to kind of look at that and, and mimic them. I think that's what he does. And, and he's you know, clearly not that original in his ideas. He's taking a lot from other places. And, but yeah, I think that's exactly what he's doing. But I think Hollow Man, because I, I think there's probably not a lot there. It probably takes a lot, like murder. And in uh, dismemberment to to really get him to feel anything. And that's why he probably escalated to this. Like it's just kind of missing that gene that that you know we normal people get from just you know regular things that 
get, you know, kind of get our adrenaline going. He, he probably doesn't have that. He's probably missing that kind of it, that excitement gene or whatever. And it, it takes a lot and, and, and it takes something like this to really get him excited and, and motivated. And, and, he, and you can see that you can see he's like, he's just giddy, like writing about, as he was singing, as he's dismembering the body, this has really provided him with maybe some emotions and feelings he's never really had before. And that would make sense, right? Because we just said that when he had the colossal failure, he continued to move forward. But maybe that colossal failure, it would have been a colossal failure for any normal person who has adrenaline, the ability to feel kind of those emotions. But maybe for the first time he felt something. And that's why he had to do it again, because he did it in such proximity in time to when he failed to, you know, kill his first victim. But I also think it's so interesting that it's intention, that he's this copycat, this hollow man, Yet he prides himself in being smarter than everybody else. You know, there's just some tension there that if you actually are the smartest person in the world, an original, you wouldn't need to be copying anybody else. But what you hit on makes so much sense. It's not necessarily he's copying them because he doesn't have ideas of his own, but he lacks that empathy or the, the ability to feel real emotions. And so he has to almost take cues from someone who can. Right. Yeah. Mimicking, mimicking behavior. And a lot of times if somebody who does that, they're, they're very good at duping people because they, they can read other people pretty well. Cause they're so like, okay, how, how are they acting in this moment? And they, they read people very well, you know, and that's why they're so good at conning people. Although I'm not sure he was all that great. I think like he, you know, his, his wife, he was sleeping on the couch in the basement. I mean, after a while, you know, somebody who's so brazen with their lives, it just, they get caught. It's the thing is they just don't really care. It's like, you know, oh, I'm not going to apologize or be ashamed because I don't really care all that much. <laughs> so it's, it's not a big deal to him, but I mean, after a while, he's like, well, where have you been? You haven't been going to work. You haven't been going to therapy. It, it does catch up with you you know, and, and people, and, and it did, it all caught up with him. And, you know, when he killed Johnny and he thought he was so smart by, you know, breaking into his apartment and sending emails to his friends and resigning from his position through an email and then not answering, like, where do you want your, your last check to go? I mean, it's just, he, he just overthought everything. And, you know, quickly it was found out that, okay, Johnny's missing and something's wrong here. And, and I think he just thought, again, he's so smart. And, and I don't want to say he's not smart, but he, he just, this was just a very, very stupid way that he conducted this crime. So this is never fair to ask you to do profiles on the, on the spot, but oh, no. I'm always interested <laughs> about how profiles match up with the eventual person so who am I. was caught. And so in a case like this, if you were... Obviously, I can't give you all the information, but if you were given sort of the information about the victims and and how they were lured into this situation and and everything else, is there anything about who Mark Twitchell is that surprises you, if that makes sense? Is there anything about him that doesn't really fit what you would expect the profile to be of a person who committed this kind of crime? I, I think that's hard to say because I looked at this case after we all you know knew who it was. It wasn't like something I could go back and say, you know, just looking at him. No, n- none of it surprises me. But I would tell you, if he ever heard what I had to say about him, he would be so mad. He'd probably write me. He'd probably write about me. He'd probably... <laughs> 
he'd probably say because you know the people who confront him and and call him out for who he is he's he he really has a lot of disdain like he called the de- detective clark stupid you know he'd probably do the same thing but you know no there there's not a lot that surprised me it's hard it's just it would be so hard to like try to look at this crime without knowing the details like just knowing okay this is what happened here's you know without but I, I can't think of anything that particularly surprises me about him. I, I think the one thing and what I the one thing I will say is like what we talked about a little bit earlier, just sort of the lack of previous violence. There's no real criminal history or his personal history. There's the, the lack of violence, I think. Yeah, I think that's a that's a I want to kind of focus on that for a second because we hear this a lot in other cases. People will see the person who's accused, you know, whether it's like the Long Island serial killer in Delphi or maybe, maybe in Idaho, you know, you have a suspect who doesn't necessarily have what you would expect to see that history of violence. Do you think it's a little overstated that you're going to see that kind of thing? You mentioned sort of the lighting fires, hurting animals and (laughs) the triad thing. Is that real? (laughs) I mean, that's sort of an aside. Is that, if we decided that was kind of a simple, simplistic way of looking at it. Yeah. I think some early research suggested that, but I, I don't know because I don't know that like, do we, we asked lately about serial killers stuff. You know, I, I don't know that certain serial killers were actually asked that. So I don't know if that's held up over these years, but it did seem like some of the early research suggested they might have some of those issues early on. And maybe we've just latched onto it and kind of it's become a trope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've been looking I, in all the wrong places for serial killers. I guess I'm not typical because I just I just look at the that particular case and that individual. But th- here's what I I think I've started to kind of formulate the more cases that I've seen in my career or when I, and I just, I'm just talking for myself and, and, and one of my colleagues may have something different to say. Cause sometimes when I say an opinion, somebody will say, oh, that's not true. <laughs> but when you see this predatory violence, many times like in their like personal history, there's not necessarily a history of physical violence, but you have a, maybe a history of control issues or, you know, perhaps anger issues, but that's what I've seen in in certain like serial sexual murders. You don't necessarily see that. When I've seen violence that has just maybe seemed more impulsive, then I tend to see more violence in their history, like physical violence in, in their history. So that, that's been my experience with the cases that I've been a part of or, or worked on. So in, in this case, you know, this was very predatory, it was very planned. So, but I, I still, like, I always think there's no violence in this path. Like, is there, there's, is there something there? You just, you always sort of think that, but, but as, you know, as I look back at other cases, I'm like, well, maybe that shouldn't be so surprising. And like you said, everyone kind of consumes their fantasy in different ways. And not to say that everyone who watches Dexter, you know, loves violence or whatnot, but he did watch it an obsessive amount. And so maybe, you know, with his creative side, his filmmaking side, that somehow was the way he was channeling it until it stepped out of the media sphere. Yeah. And it could be too that, you know, you know, Dexter sort of this, this Peter Pan of serial murders, I'm only going to kill the bad people. And perhaps, you know, his, any violent fantasies that he had, they didn't involve female victims, they involved male victims. You know, like even in, in the case of Joe D'Angelo, who was known as the Golden State Killer, you know, I really felt like 
the the men were a, a central figure in his fantasy. And, you know, it's not these incidental obstacles that he had to overcome. You know, he's purposely choosing these homes where they, they had, um, you know, a couple there, a male, female couple. And, uh, you know, and I think they were central to his fantasies. And people don't necessarily think, well, a man's not having, unless he's gay, he's not having a fantasy about another man. And that's just, I think we're just finding that's not always necessarily true. So it could just be. You know, his his violence is d- directed toward other men, not women as well. So maybe that's why in his normal, you know, life that he, you know, lives outwardly and the public can see he's involved in heterosexual relationships that he doesn't need or feel that he needs to be violent in. Well, look, I've really enjoyed going through this case with you. I know you've you've now done it a couple of times. And one of those times is going to be in your first new episode from the consult. If, if you haven't listened to it, there's actually 15 or 16 older ones. Yeah. I think we have 15 episodes. So yeah. is bingeable, even though Ooh, new stuff is just started coming out. I do want to ask you, so how do you guys approach this case? And I think this will help people understand how your show is structured in general. How do you approach this case? What are you, what are you and your sort of colleagues? Like, how do you, how do you break this case down on your show? So we, we approach it just sort of how you we approached it tonight. We just talk, you know, about the facts of the case, like just a brief case summary. And we discuss that we're going to be talking about his writings and particularly SK confession, really focus on that. And we, we do just, you know, very kind of thorough analysis of his what we think is, you know, personality, what we think is important about him. So it is a little bit different because we're not you know, coming up with a profile of an unknown offender. A lot of our, you know, most of the cases that we look at, we, you know, have the the case summary, we go over victimology, we, you know, talk about, you know, just our impressions of the crime and our observations. And then we come up with like a profile. And if it's a solved case, we talk about, okay, how, how did the profile match the offender who was caught? If it's unsolved, you know, we just put that out there, tell people to keep an open mind, have them reach out to the investigating agency. But, you know, in, in the behavioral analysis unit, you, you get all sorts of assignments. You don't necessarily have, you know, you may just be looking at a letter. You may just be looking at, you know, one crime. You may be looking at a series of crimes. You may be providing a prosecution strategy. I, I even sat in and the first Roger Clemens trial to help pick a jury in that first trial that was ended in a mistrial. I, I didn't work on the second one, but so there's all sorts of different assignments you can get. And so we'll, we'll be covering a lot of different things. Mostly we'll be covering violent crime, but you know, this case, we're just looking at the crime itself. We look at who got caught. We read the letters and, and try to kind of come up with, okay, what do we think about Mark Twitchell? Well, Julia, this sounds fascinating. I know that so many people are excited for November 1st when your new season starts or you restart, but very glad to hear that we have 15 backlog episodes to binge on once you start. And also everything you've just described, I think is going to bring so much to the true crime world because with your expertise, you're going to be able to do what we're all seeking to do which is to understand how people who may look like us can do kind of the most heinous things in life. And I think that's there's a, a deep 
desire for all of us to understand what leads a person to do that. Because at core, you'd like to think we're all the same, but clearly that's not the case in a lot of the cases we see. And you and your colleagues have the expertise to actually speak about what drives a person to do that and what uh, that means for the rest of us. So I'm so excited about your podcast. I know a lot of our listeners are as well. And thank you for taking the time today to talk about Mark Twitchell with us. Thank you very much, Brett, Alice. I love your show as well. (laughs) So great coverage of this case. I I really enjoyed it. It was kind of scary when we found out how involved you were and you were going to listen. And I was like, oh no, (laughs) what if we got it completely wrong? And look, guys, if y'all have not listened to Julia and her colleagues sit around and create a profile for some of these these cases, these unsolved cases, it really is fascinating. I mean, it's everything people love about true crime. So Julia is part of the prosecutor's family now. I hope you guys will all listen to her. Jason Usry of Santa may be a criminal. And the person who edits this show is her editor as well. So you know it's going to sound good, if nothing else. But we're really excited. By the time you hear this, there'll be at least one episode out new episode out, maybe more. So I want you guys to all go and subscribe. You can leave your five-star reviews for Julia this week instead of us. I'm sure if you leave a question, she'll, she'll answer it on the show. (laughs) Well, Julia, is there anything else you want to say either about the Twitchell case or what you're doing or anything before we sign off? No, I think we've covered everything. I I really appreciate you having me on again. I I enjoy it. And and I appreciate you plugging our show as well and and helping us get back up and running again. We are so honored to be a a small part of that journey. We just need to get that podcast out there because your voice needs to be amplified. And pretty soon people are going to see why. So thank you, Julia. Consult. Everybody listen to it. One other show I just want to mention briefly. One minute remaining from Australia. We appeared on that show had a great interview. If you haven't listened to it, really cool show. He typically talks to people who are in prison. So he was, we were, we were coming from it from a little different perspective. So if you enjoy kind of hearing friendly debate about stuff, we had a good time with him. So I hope you'll check that out too. But first, go subscribe to the consult. Okay, Julia, I'm going to take us out. Don't forget, you got to tell the world who you are too, or else this won't work out. But Alice and I will be back next week. And this time we will be talking about a new case. But until then, I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And I'm Julia. And this is the Prosecutor's Podcast. them a little bit and then after I gave a presentation once to a bunch of detectives and afterwards a few of them came up to me and one of them said my partner here just said can you imagine being married to her oh. <laughs> oh. So. the answer is awesome yeah. <laughs> oh, that's so. great okay well we cannot wait to hear what you have to say tonight we're yeah. so excited so tar- turn on all of the things that you suppress in like normal social company there you go, there you go. <laughs> all right you ready to rock and roll <laughs>
We're still not smooth, if you can't yeah. tell. <laughs> so I think you are. Jason, turn that, turn that corner. Jason will make you sound great. It oh, he did, he did a great job. And our the, the episode, I'm like, you know, like, wow, this is this is excellent. I was really happy. Yeah. Awesome. Well, so. he's listening here, so that's why oh. we're popping you Don't up, say Jason. too many nice oh. things about him. <laughs> no, I'll go to his head. His right will go up. His right will go up. Never. <laughs> True crime on Pluto TV. Unravel the mysteries with Forensic Files and 48 Hours. Investigate crimes with Dateline 24-7 and Unsolved Mysteries. With thousands of free crime movies and TV shows, Pluto TV is the true home of crime. Download the Pluto TV app on all your favorite devices and start streaming true crime on live channels and on demand. Pluto TV. Stream now. Pay never.